This is the Biden administration. They lie through their teeth. They're lying to the American people about why uh, gasoline prices are so high. They're lying to the American people about inflation. This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, June 24th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Doug Blair. That was Congressman Gary Palmer. He joined the show today to talk about some of the biggest failings of the Biden administration and what congressional Republicans plan to do to curtail the administration's worst impulses. But before we get to Doug's conversation with Congressman Gary Palmer, let's hit our top news stories of the day. In a landmark decision, the Supreme Court overturned a strict New York concealed carry gun law on Thursday, ruling it unconstitutional. The 6-3 ruling overruled a lower court decision requiring New Yorkers to demonstrate a proper cause to obtain a permit to carry a concealed handgun in public. Justice Clarence Thomas, who authored the ruling, wrote, The constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. He added, that is not how the First Amendment works when it comes to unpopular speech or the free exercise of religion. It is not how the Sixth Amendment works when it comes to a defendant's right to confront the witnesses against him. It is not how the Second Amendment works when it comes to public carry for self-defense. New York Governor Kathy Hochul took to Twitter to express her frustration with the decision tweeting, it is outrageous that at a moment of national reckoning on gun violence, the Supreme Court has recklessly struck down a New York law that limits those who can carry concealed weapons. The Biden administration is proposing significant changes to Title IX. Effectively, the proposed changes would mean that schools would be required to treat any transgender students as the gender they now identify with, or risk being accused of discrimination on the basis of sex. A fact sheet provided by the Department of Education on the proposed changes states, The proposed regulations would clarify that Title IX's prohibition on discrimination based on sex applies to discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. They would make clear that preventing someone from participating in school programs and activities consistent with their gender identity would cause harm in violation of Title IX, except in some limited areas set out in the statute or regulations. Likely, this would mean that any single-sex spaces, whether bathrooms, locker rooms, or programs, would have to be open to any students based on gender identity, not biology. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona said in a statement, As we celebrate the 50th anniversary of this landmark law, our proposed changes will allow us to continue that progress and ensure all our nation's students no matter where they live, who they are, or whom they love, can learn, grow, and thrive in school. Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation, said in a statement, Thanks to unelected bureaucrats, male students who merely identify as female will have a right to access female dorms, bathrooms, lockers, and showers. This rejection of obvious differences between men and women, boys and girls, will rob young people across this country of their innocence. This overreach is a direct attack on girls and women, a slap in the face to parents, and one more reason why we need to abolish the Department of Education. The Heritage Foundation, of course, is the parent organization of the Daily Signal. In an interesting twist, the Education Department did not propose changes in how Title IX applies to athletics, although it indicated in a press release such changes would be proposed down the road. 
there's been significant controversy in recent years over biological males participating in women's sports, and a change for Title IX affecting athletics would likely require schools to allow biological males to participate on girls' sports teams. The Senate successfully voted to advance a gun control bill Thursday, avoiding a filibuster in a 65 to 34 vote. If passed, the bill would increase background checks for buyers under 21, provide federal funds to administer red flag laws, crack down on straw purchases, as well as provide mental health funding. Among the GOP senators to vote to advance the bill was Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. McConnell expressed his support for the bill, describing it as a package of common sense and popular solutions, and saying the legislation does not so much as touch the rights of the overwhelming majority of American gun owners who are law-abiding citizens of sound mind. Thursday was a big day for Ukraine and Moldova. Both nations are now formally candidates for the European Union. Charles Michel, president of the European Council, a body which determines the EU's priorities and direction, tweeted, A historic moment. Today marks a crucial step on your path towards the EU. He added, referencing the leadership of Ukraine and Moldova, Our future is together. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky tweeted, it's a unique and historical moment in EU-Ukraine relations, and Ukraine's future is within the EU. That's all for headlines. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Congressman Gary Palmer as we discuss how the Biden administration is failing the American people. Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to politics and policy. Plus, we bring you an exclusive interview with a problematic lawmaker or conservative activist every second and fourth Tuesday of the month. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. And we are also problematic on social media, so be sure to follow us on Instagram. My guest today is Congressman Gary Palmer, who represents the great state of Alabama. Congressman, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I represent part of the great state of Alabama, the 6th District. Sure. But Alabama is, in fact, a great state. <laughs> it is. We, no disagreement. Sure. So let's start out with talking about health and human services and health care in general. You have been pretty attentive to what's been going on with health care recently. And it seems like health and human services has had a rough going. Uh, first, there was the forced anti-racism policy that you introduced legislation to mm -hmm. stop. And then there is the ongoing baby formula crisis. How has Congress been attempting to hold HHS accountable for these failures? Well, we had a hearing back on April 27th with um, Secretary of Health and Human Services, Xavier Becerra, and uh, I asked him about this new rule that, that they put forward uh, that will incentivize doctors to implement what they call anti-racism programs, and, and really what it will wind up doing is incentivize reverse discrimination. Mm. And he denied that the rule existed. He, he claimed that I had misinformation. Uh, the very next day in the Ways and Means Committee, uh, Congressman Jason Smith asked him about it. He denied it again, even though uh, it's clear in the rule. 
So it indicates to me that he was either trying to mislead Congressman Smith and, and me, or he's ignorant of what's actually going on under his watch at HHS. But the rule is, uh, uh, it's it's in the in the rule and would give incentives to doctors who implement what the uh, HHS calls anti-racism uh, programs that uh, basically would would pay doctors a bonus mm. to uh, discriminate against other people. Mm. Have you been successful in maybe pushing HHS and these other organizations to stop doing these types of things? No. I mean, this is the Biden administration. Mm. They lie through their teeth. They're lying to the American people about why uh, gasoline prices are so high. They're lying to the American people about inflation. Uh, we had a hearing uh, yesterday on uh, on uh, the energy uh, crisis, the, the price of gasoline. And I made the point, they, they, they first blamed it on the pandemic, then they blamed it on Putin, then they blamed it on energy company profits. It's not the pandemic. It's not Putin. It's not profits. It's it's policy, mm-hmm. Biden administration policy, and they're not going to change. Uh, they uh, Biden is using the, the the Defense Authorization Act to try to force uh, the energy companies to to uh, produce more uh, fossil fuel. At the same time, he's doing that, Douglas. Uh, the other parts of of the administration are using regulations to block them. So they're saying one thing and doing another. And this is consistent throughout the administration. Mm -hmm. It's intentional. Uh, And so when it's intentional, uh, I'll introduce this bill, but it'll never it'll never get a vote. It'll never it won't even be brought up in committee. But what we're trying to do is to educate the American public about what's really happening in this administration. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like all of these things kind of tied together, the failure of HHS and of other aspects of the Biden administration to come together is creating more and more problems for the American people. Absolutely. Uh, I heard uh, yesterday that we might see uh, eggs at $12 a dozen. I mean, we've been talking about $6 a gallon gas. Well, we're there Mm. and it's going to continue to go up. The other thing that people need to know about this, and, and look, even on the healthcare side, your insurance premiums are going up. Uh, everything's going up. And there are things that we could do on the healthcare side that would clearly uh, reduce the, the cost of health insurance, but mm-hmm. they're not going to do it. Uh, there are things that, that we have proposed uh, that would allow small companies, uh, independent contractors, to get health insurance through association group plants. They, won't, they won't, will not do that. Uh, for younger people who uh, don't think they need to be paying five six hundred dollars a month in premiums for insurance because they think they're invincible, mm. could get short-term insurance and and buy what they need, you know, to protect them against an accident or something like that. They won't allow that. Mm-hmm. All of that would bring premiums down. As I've already discussed on the energy side, we have we will never run out of natural gas. We will never run out of oil. That's how huge the reserves are. If we continue to use it at the same rate that the world used it for the last 100 years, we've got one reserve in, in uh, western Colorado, southern, southwestern Wyoming, and northern Utah that contains more recoverable oil than the entire world's used in the last 100 years. We'll never run out. Mm-hmm. But, what, but instead of tapping into these resources to bring these costs down, they're pushing policies to, to uh, force us into – 
renewables, when the grid won't support it, when renewables cannot generate the, the energy capacity that we need, and, and, and I think really what it is is they know they're going to lose in the midterms mm. uh, the House, and, and, and I think they'll lose the Senate as well. So they see this as a five- or six-month window to try to shove everything they can down the American people's throat in these last four or five months, mm-hmm. the last, uh, you know, when they when they have the majority in both houses and, and the White House. And the same thing's going on over at HHS. That's this whole idea of this rule. Right. Now, speaking of crises, you mentioned, obviously, the energy crisis that we're going through, but we are still going through a baby formula crisis Absolutely. months and months after the fact. Uh, you, you you obviously mentioned this hearing that you went to, but it seems like not much has changed since then because I just read a report that indicated that Americans are now having to import formula from Mexico to bridge the gap. How is Congress planning to address those issues both before, you know, with a Democrat control of the House and possibly in November? Well, again, people, American people need to understand that that uh, when you're in the minority, you have zero power. Mm. You can't even get a committee room to have your own hearing without their permit, without the other side's permission. So they brought in uh, people from Abbott. Uh, that's where this whole thing started. Is uh, Abbott uh, represents about 47 percent of the uh, baby formula market, and their plant in Sturgis, Michigan, produced 40 percent of that. Mm-hmm. So when that facility had to shut down, you immediately had a supply crisis. Uh, we had that hearing with, uh, with the FDA, and, and, and I brought up the fact that the guy who is over the, the division that handles food, the food part of FDA, food drugs, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, the people who actually do the inspections and, and, and should have oversight on it don't report to him. Mm. So you had a situation where in 2019 there were multiple reports about uh, the the problems at that Sturgis plant in Michigan. Uh, there were at least 16 complaints by parents and, and, and medical personnel that there was a problem with the formula coming out of that plant. The FDA did an inspection. Uh, they, there, uh, there were numerous violations, uh, uh, problems with the drying vessels and leaky roof and a number of things. And then COVID hit, mm-hmm. and there was there was not another inspection by the FDA, not another inspection by uh, the state of Michigan, and Abbott didn't do anything to fix the problems. In 2021, when they finally came back and did inspections, the, uh, the FDA notified Abbott ahead of time, which is highly unusual, Douglas. They normally mm-hmm. don't do that. Uh, they just show up. Mm-hmm. But they notified them ahead of time, still found those problems, and didn't include it in their report. It took a whistleblower inside Abbott submitting a report to get action on this. Mm-hmm. So when we get the majority back, uh, I, we're going to dig deeper into this. Mm-hmm. And, and I've already submitted questions to Abbott. I want to know who the FDA contacted to inform them about the inspection. I want to know who they sat down with to determine what would be in the FDA report, mm-hmm. if Abbott had any uh, uh, influence in, in that report. Mm-hmm. And I want to know why Abbott, having known this, for, for two and a half years, didn't do anything to correct it. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to what you mentioned at the earlier part where you questioned Frank Giannis, who is the FDA's deputy commissioner for food policy and response, about how he was unaware 
that this was even happening. It seems like there's this sort of general trend of either somebody's not aware or somebody's incompetent and something happens. Do you see the Biden administration as having a repeated pattern of this type of behavior? I don't know if this can be totally put on the Biden administration in the context of, of what led up to this. I think the problem with the Biden administration is the response to it. Mm. And, and, uh, and the fact that you have an organizational structure where the individual who sh should ultimately be responsible for making sure that these things don't happen, the people who are doing the inspections and have the information don't even report to him. And he made an attempt, according to the Washington Post now, uh, made an attempt to, to, to start a restructuring process and was told to stand down. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't want to respond to that when I brought that question up in the hearing. But uh, th those, first of all, I think we've got to look at the structure of the FDA. And, and, and what I've been told is that there's more emphasis on, on drugs than on food safety. And, and the people who head up the FDA are generally medical doctors. And so we've got to figure out how we're going to make the FDA work properly. But the other thing that we need to look into that you, you just brought up is the Biden administration's culpability in this. Mm. It's one of those, I hate to use the old Watergate phrase, the 50th anniversary of Watergate, but what did you know and when did you know it? And then there's the why question. Why didn't you act? What took so long? And uh, that's where I think the, the Biden administration has some culpability. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it sounds like, again, that there are these things that are coming out of the Biden administration that are just so antithetical to American values that it's problematic. So as you mentioned before, there's that bill from last month that would ban health care providers from adopting racially discriminatory policies at the request of the Department of Health and Human Services. What is the status of that legislation? It's been filed, but like I said before, it's never going to get to committee. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you're in the minority, you can introduce whatever you want to, mm -hmm. but it's entirely up to the majority to, to advance the legislation. And the majority is not interested. They're apparently not interested. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but, but I think we as Republicans have to lay down markers for the American people to let them know what we will do when we're in the majority. Mm -hmm. And I can assure you that bill will be reintroduced in the next Congress. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think I can speak with pretty high degree of certainty that, that it will get a hearing and, and it will advance. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to, to lay out for the American people what they can expect from Republicans in the majority. We'll be uh, rolling out our, our commitment to America uh, you know, a little later, I think, uh, end of August, around September. And, and when we get the majority, unlike the Democrats, when they got the majority, we all got sworn in and then they recessed for the rest of the week so they could go have a retreat to figure out what they're going to do. Mm. When we get sworn in, we will start dropping bills that day. Sure. And, uh, and we'll pass them. Mm. You did mention at the top of the show that there is some legislation that you are thinking that you're going to introduce. What, what is that legislation? Well, tomorrow I'll be introducing a bill that will allow states to require proof of citizenship to vote in federal elections. Arizona passed a bill like that, and uh, the Supreme Court struck it down because they said that uh, the National Voting Registration Act does not require that. Mm -hmm. Now, states can require proof of citizenship to vote in state and local elections, but not federal elections. So my bill amends the National Voter, Voter Registration Act so that states can now uh, require proof of citizenship to vote in federal elections. Mm -hmm. 
And then there's two other bills. We have a huge problem, and this is uh, part of what made uh, raise so many questions in, in the 2020 election about uh, the uh, integrity of the election. Uh, in 2012, the Pew Research Center put out a report and, and said that there's 24 million Americans improperly registered. Uh, almost two million of them are deceased. Mm. Uh, almost three million are, are registered in multiple states. Well, that is that is a, a problem with the states not having accurate voter files. Judicial Watch has filed numerous lawsuits uh, to try to force uh, state and counties to clean up their voter files. One suit involved Los Angeles County, where they found that there's 1.5 million more people registered to vote in L.A. County than are old enough to vote who live in the county. Mm. The state of Michigan, for instance, is 105% registered to vote. That means they've got 5% more people registered to vote than are eligible to vote in that state. And the average is 74%. So you, you see what an enormous gap it really is mm -hmm. when you, instead of comparing it to 100% registered, to what the national average is. 16 counties in Michigan are over 110% registered to vote. One of them is 119%, and all, and all the counties around Detroit are over 110%. Overall, they've got 67 counties in Michigan that are 100% registered or higher. Mm -hmm. uh, there's over 800,000 uh, inactive voters still on their voter files in Pennsylvania. Uh, the, four the counties around Atlanta are over, all over 100% registered to vote. It creates a huge problem. And um, there's uh, uh, two bills that I'm introducing. Uh, one that uh, will put requirements on the states, uh, the secretaries of states, in terms of uh, reporting to Congress uh, through the Election Assistance uh, Commission on their progress in cleaning up their voter files. And, uh, and then the other one takes away the safe harbor that exists where uh, the secretaries of state can send you a, a um, change of address card mm. that you have to send back to certify uh, that you've moved. Or if you don't send it back, they just assume you're still there. Mm. And they, they claim that's sufficient. Well, it's not. Uh, there, there needs to be cross-referencing with the uh, uh, Division of uh, uh, Motor Vehicles, you know, driver's license. And there, I think there needs to be cross-referencing with the death data. Mm. Uh, and, and maybe even uh, doing it with uh, uh, collaborating between the states and their death data and, and Social Security. That would also help us reduce the amount of improper payments we send out through Social Security to, right. to dead people. Mm. As we wrap up here, I do want to sort of combine all of this information. So you, as you've mentioned before, when you're in the minority, it's very difficult to get things done. So you're introducing this bill. You're introducing these bills on, on health care. You all, have all this stuff. If Republicans take back Congress in November, President Biden will still be in the White House. Right. What is the plan then to counter some of his worst instincts with legislation? Well, the most important thing we can do is, is on the appropriation side because um, despite all eff efforts to the contrary, the House still has the power of the purse. Uh, that will be difficult because it could force us into situations where there could be government shutdowns. And we will we'll be forced to negotiate with them. Uh, what people need to understand is that that we we could have a, a really big majority in the House, and I believe the potential for that to happen is there. Uh, but we get the majority back in the Senate. It's not we're not going to have sixty, and they'll still have the ability to filibuster whatever we send over, unless 
it's something done through reconciliation, mm. which is not subject to filibuster. Um, and we're not going to do it with the filibuster. Thank God we have it now. Uh, but let's just say we do get some things passed by both houses and send it over to the White House and the president vetoes that legislation. Uh, we will not have enough votes in either the House or the Senate to overturn a veto. So people need to understand how this this is a little civics lessons about, about how <laughs> things work. But I think the most important thing for us as Republicans, and, and Kevin McCarthy is all on board with this, he wants to, to have an election of contrast. Mm. This is what we're for. And, and once we get the majority back and then demonstrate that our commitment to these things by introducing these bills and getting them passed, because we have, again, in, in the, 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 the next two years, the next Congress, we have to, to message to the American people what we will do when we have the House, the Senate, and the White House mm -hmm. to get our country back on the right track. That was Congressman Gary Palmer, a representative from the great state of Alabama. Congressman, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iHeartRadio. Please leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and please encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we're back with you all on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.